Kia ora, I'm Madison Reedy. Welcome to Life in the Fast Lane. New Zealand businesses are a resilient bunch. They've weathered numerous crises, the GFC, earthquakes and now COVID-19. For the past 20 years, the Deloitte Fast 50 has championed those business owners who've not only survived, but thrived. Honouring businesses that have achieved often unbelievable annual revenue growth. So what's their secret to success? In this podcast, I'll be asking some of the country's most notable entrepreneurs how they did it and what to do when the going gets tough. This is Life in the Fast Lane. If anyone knows what business success looks like, it's Jeff Ross and Justine Troy. The couple went from distilling 42 Below Vodka in their Wellington garage to helping build an empire of world-class brands, including Trilogy, Ecoya and Moa Craft Beer. Companies they've put their name to demand attention, even attracting investment from global beverage giant Bacardi and private equity firm Citic Capital China Partners. The brand gurus have been a recurring feature on the Deloitte Fast 50 Index, popping up year after year, proving it's not just the product but the people behind it who fuel success. They're now combining business acumen with a family history steeped in farming to successfully run one of New Zealand's premier high country stations in the beautiful south. Well, welcome to you both to Life in the Fast Lane. Thank you. Good to Thanks be here. Thanks for having us. Are you both living proof that with persistence and passion, you can pull off almost absolutely anything? I'm not sure about absolutely anything, but I would say that persistence and passion are very important qualities, and at times you need huge amounts of them. Let's talk about the numbers, because these numbers are really staggering. 42 Below achieved over 2,000% growth. Trilogy, 690% annual growth, and Ecoya, 545% annual growth. What's the formula to consistently achieving that level of growth and performance time and time again? There's a bunch of things that would be part of that formula. Um, capital and capital resource was certainly one of them. That was certainly true in 42 Below. You know, we were a very small company when we listed on the New Zealand Stock Exchange. We raised $15 million at the time. That went straight into growth. And certainly um, people would be the other aspect. And, you know, I have to say long-term business partners, Grant Baker and uh, Steve Sinclair, were very, very important part of all of those businesses, particularly with the Acquire and Trilogy, and they were very much lead there. And pulling the right talent around us was, was really important. And I think identifying that the sector was in growth as well. Is it anything to do with the product when you're growing, or is it all about the strategy to sell it? It is all about the product. Uh, you simply can't build a world-class brand without having a world-class product. And that's evidenced um, certainly with 42 Below and also with more in alcohol when you're entering competitions, they do blind taste tests. So when you're winning time and time again in a blind taste test, you know that you've got a quality world-class product. There's a, a very... Uh, a low threshold for um, poor products in a, a really highly competitive global market in any sector. And if your product is, I guess, the best out there, does that then make it easier to sell it? Yes, certainly. Like when uh, we sold 42 Below to Bacardi, 42 Below was the most awarded vodka in the world. That was part of our consumer pitch, for sure. Focus on product and the rest will come naturally then. Yeah, yeah. The, the saying at back at 42 Below, which is relevant to all of our businesses, it's 
what's on the inside of the bottle is as important as what's on the outside of the bottle in probably equal measures. Yeah, and the people, I think, um, which Jeff mentioned earlier, certainly in UK, by the time we sold to Bacardi, I think we were the fastest growing super premium vodka in the UK. I could pretty much say that was down to one man and his charisma. Uh, (laughs) Justin Bay, do you know who you are? It's that sort of perfect storm, really, of the extraordinary uh, quality of the product, the innovation of the flavours, and then obviously the capital to take it to global markets and the team that are behind it and their ability to represent it and tell the story. Justin, you mentioned just earlier about identifying growth. All of your businesses are in quite different industries, although they obviously have some similarities too. How did you both identify areas and industries that were ripe for growth? Well, that's pretty easy with 42 Below. We were in our late 20s and drinking a lot of vodka at the time. (laughs) I think that the global cocktail culture was taking off and we were very much a part of that with our cohort in Wellington. The answer to your question is, you know, looking to global trends and it's very easy down in, you know, New Zealand to get a little bit caught up in what's going on here. And if you have lofty goals for your brands, then looking at those international trends and making sure that we then take our brand values, attach them to our products and move into that global marketplace. We try to pick tailwinds basically in every single business we go into because it obviously makes uh, your own business growth a lot easier if the whole tide is rising around you. And so 42 Blow, the cocktail renaissance, we could see that coming with Akoya. Personal fragrance had been a big thing for hundreds and hundreds of years. But as people became more and more house proud, we could see home fragrance becoming a growth sector. With skin care, it was pretty obvious. Your skin is your large, your body's largest organ. And so if you're putting product on that over years and years and years, you don't want to be using synthetic chemicals. You obviously want to be using a natural product. So that was the growth trend that we and many others recognised. And with more, people are drinking quality over quantity. And in beer, the trend that we saw and we experienced again firsthand ourselves is when you go out, you want to have a few really good quality beers rather than perhaps like a couple of decades ago, you'd <laughs> you'd smash a pack. <laughs> and the an interesting one we'll get to soon is farming, really. We think that is on the eve of a really big growth opportunity, for uh, particularly so for New Zealand. You're both obviously very good at picking those tailwinds. So what sort of criteria do you have on paper for a tailwind that you could then seize an opportunity on? Is it scalable? Can our particular set of skills add a really material contribution to the sector? Yeah, is it really hungry on capital? Ideally not. All businesses need capital, but we've typically stayed away from building huge factories and things like that that chew up a lot of capital quickly. Mm. I don't think there's a formula for picking a growth sector other than our intuition and what we're observing around us. And we're both you know, from an advertising background, so we spend a lot of time looking at consumer behaviours and macro trends and what's driving them and what's going on in popular culture. Jussie particularly consumes a lot of media worldwide, so she picks up on themes that are starting to emerge. Is there a feeling that comes with it, maybe? Yeah, it's part gut, you know. Yeah, And I guess it's your own personal views as well. You know, we'll get to farming soon, but it's our personal view that we think environmentally-led farming is a huge global opportunity, and it's particularly right for New Zealand. So 
that's something that we're quite keen on ourselves, so we've, we've decided to back it. It's an interesting question, though, because I come back to, well, you're right, there is a sort of serial nature to the effort that we're putting into all of these different brands and their growth opportunities, and I guess... I've asked myself that question too, as um, we're standing in red bands on a farm uh, all of a sudden, and that's a long way from the Ritz in London where we were selling our vodka. And, you know, I've asked myself the question, what am I doing here and what have we seen and, and why in the second half of our life are we about to invest everything that we've learnt into this particular sector? And are we just lucky that our values align with what we think the global trends are demanding? Is it luck or isn't it now? I like to think that it's a bit of both, that um, we've got the wind at our back. Let's get to farming since it's come up in conversation so much already. You two are both (laughs) obviously very passionate about it. What is this growth story and farming that you're in the middle of right now? Tell me more about it. Well, I guess to link on from the consumer movement we saw is that the the biggest macro trend or one of the biggest macro trends worldwide is that consumers want to connect with their food and fibre. So they want to go right back to where it comes from. They want to know the the story. So no longer do they just want to go back to the processor. They want to go right to the source, right to the farm. They need to know the practices, um, the environmental story particularly that goes behind that product. If they like what they see, they'll pay a premium for it. And that's the opportunity that we see. So we're actually treating Lake Hawea Station in a similar way to previous consumer brands. We're treating Lake Hawea Station, a farm, as a consumer brand because we want to build that brand and its brand value with consumers in markets around the world and in doing so achieve a premium for our wool, our merino wool and our, and our meat products and, and some other products as well that are coming downstream. That's the trend that we saw and that's what we're getting into now. And if you add to that decades of environmental advocacy and our deep concern for the climate crisis, I mean, I feel like if you're denying the climate crisis, then you're kind of denying gravity exists. It's the same thing. So we find ourselves in this position where we can make a material change to the way that people see agriculture and how it impacts the environment. And it is unusual in the agricultural sector for people to have our particular set of skills and background. We see that there's a a huge opportunity to, as fast as possible, lead our fellow uh, sheep and beef farmers and hopefully inspire some other ones to make the changes. And not only that, but to also realise the commercial benefit in doing so. What about the primary industry are you disrupting with this? Let's use wool as an example. And this disruption has actually come from Sheep Inc., which is a very cool startup in the UK, making sweaters where they've come up with a device where when you buy a sweater it's got a little QR code on it and it'll actually take you to the farm that wool came from. In our case we're one of three New Zealand stations supplying that wool. So that's a pretty cool traceability story which is also a big macro trend. But their goal is to become 10 times carbon positive because they realise Uh, fashion's been a terrible emitter of greenhouse gases. Mm. They realise the competitive advantage for them is becoming not just carbon positive, but 10 times. We heard pretty early on that 70% of a garment's carbon footprint actually comes from farm. So we realise the farm's role in the carbon footprint of everything we wear is massive. And therefore, if we can become carbon positive, we're going to have a massive 
impact on the proposition of fashion brands and what they can say. And fashion brands will pay a premium for that. And that's that's what's started in the case of Sheet Pink. It's a fantastic story. Lake Oweir Station has done its carbon footprint and we are carbon positive. And like them, we actually have a big, crazy, audacious goal of taking that further. Ultimately, it would be great to get to 10 times. It's a huge ask, but we've made a start. And there is no question that the fashion industry as a whole needs to urgently start to be accountable for and manage. I think they're the second largest contributor to carbon emissions on the planet. Um, More than international airlines and shipping combined. So it's it's an emerging fact that, again, is driving a consumer trend. How do you cope with controversy? In relation to farming, we are disrupting the status quo within the supply chain. So I guess when you come to something like we have with fresh eyes and a little bit of experience in finding out how the margin tree works, you ask questions. And so I guess we're asking a lot of questions that maybe haven't been asked before. And if you look at fashion in particular, you'll see that um, it's actually the retailer or the uh, manufacturer of the garment that actually gets the lion's share of the margin. And the farmer, who, you know, in our view, does an extraordinary amount of work, gets the least. And, you know, it's right down to sharing. We don't like the model. We don't like the way sharers are rewarded for volume of animals rather than quality of fleece and the experience for the animal. We believe in animal welfare. And so I guess what we're doing is asking those questions. Can we slow share? Why do you do it this way? I like to think that our community have started to see some of the impact that we've made in the local area in terms of tree planting and a lilyport library and things that we're doing that are active in the community. So it's not really around our local community as much as more within the actual business mechanics of offloading product. Yeah, because typically farmers have farmed to the gate and these large processes take the product from the gate in some cases turn it into a brand, but in most cases leave it as a commodity and export it. So we're trying to farm right to the consumer. Uh, that involves partnering with you know large producers in, in wool. It's New Zealand Merino. We're working with them to partner with brands like Sheep Inc. But because the consumer wants to see right back to the farm, that means we have to market right to the consumer. So we're active in creating images, getting marketing assets to Sheep Inc. almost on a daily basis. I'm keen to talk about vision. So if you wouldn't mind both casting your mind back to the early 2000s when you were distilling vodka in your garage in Wellington. At that time, did either of you think that this is going to be one of the world's top liquor brands? I think we dreamed it. But, you know, if, if you had have asked us on the day we first started distilling, you know, what the outcome looked like, it was probably not as big as we eventually got it to. But I guess if you dream and you get busy and then you have people come to you, like particularly Grant and Steve and the other people involved, it got that scale. How important is it to envision what your business could become while you're growing it? Belief is absolutely everything. And I think, you know, there's no doubt that... Jeff and I believed that the world needed a uh, super premium vodka from New Zealand. We believed with everything we had that our brand values as a country attached to a sector in growth 
with a really great product which we sampled uh, on our mental piece over many, many months trying to get the formula right. We really, really believed in that product and I think it's the same with everything that we've done. We've always deeply believed in it. If you don't, when those tough times come and there inevitably are, sometimes many, sometimes many all at once in the same day, if you don't have that belief at becomes pretty hard to keep trucking along. What's your vision and your dream for Lake Hawea? Our dream for Lake Hawea is to lead New Zealand farming into a carbon positive, biodiversity rich, profitable future. And that is a line that we have recently perfected for our team and for uh, we video for the Sustainable Business Awards, which we're a finalist in. It was really difficult to distill it down to just those nine words, but it is. It's an audacious goal, really, to think that we, who have never been sheep and beef farmers, Jeff's off a dairy farm and a deer farm, and my family's dairying and orchards, for us to think that we can lead New Zealand farming anywhere is probably quite, <laughs> quite a stretch. But in our heart, I think we really, really believe that our set of skills with the knowledge of the generous farming community who are really good at sharing knowledge, that if we can work really hard and quickly, we can uh, make a material difference, not just to the farming sector, but to our country and to our planet from an environmental perspective. What are you risking to try and make that dream happen? Lots of money and lots of time. And the very marrow in our bones. (laughs) It's exhausting. Halfway through our lives, it's an extraordinary undertaking. But it's our legacy uh, project. It's really, I think, the thing that our country needs us to do. What have you risked to create all of these businesses over 20-odd years? In the case of 42 Below, we just had our first child. We had a mortgage. We basically risk everything. It was all on the line there for several years. In fact, there were several years where we didn't actually you know, know if we were going to get through. And we couldn't get $20 out of the cash flow machine. So my mother did deliveries at midnight to bars in Wellington. So, you know, we do have that proper story of fear and sacrifice. I mean, we got it to a point where we could share the risk, you know, particularly with Grant and Steve investing. And then as we went public with other shareholders sharing the, both the risk and the reward. I think what we're risking now with Lake Hawea Station is really, as Jesse said, it's such a prevalent part of your your day and you can't do it in a half-hearted way. You can't half-jump this ditch. Uh, we're doing it full on. So it's another business where it's got to work, really. Does taking risks get any easier the more you do it? Not at this scale. I do feel like we have everything on the line with this project. It's still just as scary, I think. Sure, I'm not worrying about groceries anymore, but I'm worried about our planet and our contribution and our staff who, in this context, live with us. It's very interesting, and it's also, I will say, a privilege to learn about a whole new sector. That's really cool, and that's what's been cool about all of these businesses is you do a deep dive into another sector and find out what makes it tick and how it contributes. Absolutely. Is one of you more risk-averse than the other, or do you sort of egg each other on? I'm way more risk-averse than Jeff. 
Yeah, it's um, actually, as Grant used to say to me, you, you need, when you're driving a car, you need an accelerator and a brake. In any business, I think you do need both those instruments. Jussie's good at challenging. I'm good at kind of leaping at things, and sometimes we do leap, but Jussie's good at asking some pretty critical questions. You balance each other out then? We've been married for 27 years, so I think we also have developed qualities or quirks of each other. I've learned to be braver, and Jeff's probably <laughs> learned to sort of um, slow down a Pull little bit. Pull on the reins from time to time. Yeah. What is the bottom line for you both that you always come back to when you're considering whether or not to take another risk? You know, ultimately it's profit, but a lot of it is personal reward and pride. Yeah, and legacy, I think, as well. You know, we want to be able to say that we made things easier, and I I think we can in relation to growth businesses in our country. I'm incredibly proud that 42 Below was responsible for a number of firsts, going to the NZX, the extraordinary advertising that Jeff and and our friend Daryl did, which was very challenging and confronting at the time and all of those firsts which meant that other brands coming along behind could have slightly easier run of it and I think even with the business commentating community as well that they were very hard on us and now I think they have started to ask better questions and accept challenger brands and realise that it's on all of us to support them to create a better society for everybody and to create growth economically. So it's amazing to see how far the business banking community and the business community generally in our countries come in the last 20 years. It's wonderful. Perfect timing when you mentioned advertising because I was just about to ask you about this. Your marketing for 42 Below was, to put it lightly, pretty bullish and often offensive to some competitors and some countries. We won't name who. Do you have to be that bullish, do you think, to stand out in a market as crowded as food and beverage? You certainly need to stand out in, in every sector. 42 Blows personality was was a real maverick. So it had a lip and a cheek which suited vodka and suited the, the cocktail world. And that was our way in, in a very crowded market. But that doesn't necessarily work for other brands. It certainly wasn't an approach for Trilogy, for instance, which is far more sensitive and shows a hell of a lot more empathy in its brand values than perhaps 42 Below did. So it's about what's right for that consumer market. When you're creating a brand, how do you know what is right for the consumer market and that it's ultimately a brand that somebody will buy into? Well, I guess your own observations of that consumer group, what they're liking, what they're not liking, a lot of it's intuition and a lot of it is trial and error. We haven't typically very rarely done any research because it's very hard to research people's emotional attachments to a brand, especially when a brand doesn't exist yet. So you've really got to use your own observation and your own intuition. This whole feasibility study thing often becomes a big block for a lot of brands. They get so tied up in it. You know, and if you ask Jeff what he would have done differently, he'd say, and has many times, harder, faster, sooner. And I think that over-researching just becomes a barrier. Yeah, there's certainly there's certainly some times where we made some advertising or communications that weren't right. But it's often, actually, it's often more cost-effective, especially these days, to do your research in real time with actual work. You know, if it's not working, you know pretty quick. You can pull it and do something else. That's, I think, a better approach than being blinded in the headlights uh, by all the options and not actually knowing what to do and going round and round circles discussing it with committees because ultimately that incurs more cost and never gets anywhere. Making a reference to your book here, how many bastards have said no to you both over your 
business careers? Uh, well, well, many, yeah. I mean, that title really, I think if you asked anybody who's involved in a startup business, I think that title resonates. It's just people need a brand or an idea to have some sort of traction. They need another guy to have gone first before they'll really get in behind something. And I think that that's culturally really tricky for us in New Zealand as well. You know, I I do think that tall poppy exists here. I think we do under-research what's going on in the rest of the world. And we're sometimes very hard on growth brands. Although, as I said earlier, we're getting better. Yeah, there are are many bastards who have said no, but there's also a lot of good bastards who have said yes as well. So, you know, we've been very fortunate to to meet some of them and work with many of them. I'll, I'll actually tell you the bastards that said no because I, I happen to have it right here. Uh, no, a New Zealand vodka will not work. We heard this from industry stalwarts, so we went to take advice from people who had already grown great successful liquor brands and they were all like no. A super premium vodka from New Zealand's never going to work. Of course, your competitors would say that, wouldn't they? The then government, we did a feasibility study, which we paid $500 for with the government. They then said, no, a New Zealand vodka will not work. The investment banking community said, no, a New Zealand vodka will not work. Bars and restaurants, apart from the ones owned by our friends at the time, said, no, it will not work. Business commentators fell over themselves to tell us that it would not work. Jeff's nana told us that it would not work, and she was very unhappy with us for getting into plonk. Glass bottle manufacturers, you know, we said we want an extra tall bottle so that it will stand out on shelves, and they said, no, we we can't do that here. We wound up having to get our bottle offshore, which was really disappointing for us. And it's worth saying that uh, Waitrose actually adjusted their shelf size to accommodate our extra tall bottle once we hit the UK. So there was an enormous cohort of bastards that said no. Incredible. How did you overcome those challenges and also the challenges that you're probably facing on your farm right now? Just by starting. And at the time, we didn't know all those challenges existed either. If we had have listed them all down at the start, it probably would have been overwhelming and caused us to potentially stop. There's also a bit of luxury and naivety at times. And so we just started. And some of these challenges emerged. And as they did, we slowly knocked them off and eventually got through them. I'm wondering if there is some sort of characteristic in both of us that's really dogged in terms of, right, do we believe it's a good idea? Do we really, really believe it's a good idea? We've got each other, and yet we're telling ourselves that we believe it. And so it doesn't matter if the government and Nana and everyone else is basically saying they don't rate the idea. If we really believe it and we can champion it together, something inside of us, we just don't care what everyone else thinks. That's amazing. Well, thank you both so much. That is Jeff Ross and Justine Troy. Really appreciate you both joining us on the Life in the Fast Lane podcast. But I just have one more question for you both. Could you please finish this sentence for me? And Jeff, I'll start with you and then come to Justine. For your business to survive and thrive, you need? Vision. Justine? Courage. Wonderful. That is Jeff Ross and Justine Troy, founders of 42 Below Vodka and also involved in Trilogy, Ikoya and Moa Craft Beer and are now right now on their Lake Hawea station in the beautiful south. Thank you for listening to Life in the Fast Lane, brought to you by the Deloitte Fast 50, championing New Zealand businesses for the past 20 years. 